are back. Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. Last week of August. Next time that we are back here in studio is going to be September 11th. Because next week is Labor Day and Pam will not be laboring on Labor Day. She's nodding her head. Okay, Nick just Nick, Nick needs to remember that. Big Boss Nick needs to remember that. Pam will not be laboring on Labor Day. <laughs> but welcome, welcome. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Where we go, behind the lens and below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, the production designers, uh, costume designers, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, composers, authors, you name it. We talk to them. And I'm very excited about who we're talking to on today's show. But first, I have to give a huge congratulations to the El Segundo Little League team. I am a huge fan and have been for many decades of the World Series Little League and Little League. Um, I loved when I would go back east and uh, watch my youngest nephews play in Little League, especially the very youngest who would throw temper tantrums on the field. But he's hopefully grown out of that now since he graduated high school this year. But congratulations. That was a great game. If nobody saw it, check out on, on social media, you know, w- how they played and that uh, and Lewis's la- uh, home run in the, in the sixth inning. Just amazing job. And if you're in L.A., they're going to have a parade this afternoon at 3.30. September 10th, they're doing something. Um trying to think what else oh the Dodgers are apparently having them at Dodger Stadium tomorrow night so and of course baseball season there are lots of great baseball movies out there uh so it's never too late to check out a baseball movie but as for behind the lens today very exciting some of you may have seen my tease on social media over the weekend uh about a film that Almost everyone dies in the end. This has been a running joke between a publicist friend of mine, Jessica Kill. Um, This is how we like to describe everything. Everyone dies in the end. Everyone dies in the end. When people will ask me or ask her, well, what happens in the film? Everyone dies in the end. Okay, well, everyone doesn't die in the end of this this one film we're going to talk about today. Uh, It is, it is, don't, Look away. Uh, It is a brand new horror chiller thriller from the Michaels. Michael Buffaro and Michael Mitten, they're going to be joining us at the midpoint of the show. So I'm very, very excited about that because I love this film. It is so much fun, but from a technical standpoint, it is the use of color, the use of sound and music, superbly done. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with the Michaels about this one. Uh, And it'll be in theaters, in theaters this coming Friday. But before we get to that, another film that 
I actually had to re I had to edit the audio this morning um, because of some my potty mouth uh, in my excitement and talking with the filmmaker Nimrod Antel. Uh, the film is Retribution. Liam Neeson. This is classic Neeson. He is flawless. I don't and the film itself takes place for 95% of the film in a car. And I don't think I've seen anyone since what Stephen Knight did with Tom Hardy in Locke um, and what Tom conveyed about a situation or character. I haven't seen that kind of controlled emotion in a contained space. Um, Liam matches that today and in some respects surpasses what Tom did in Locke. You, in Retribution, you can feel the nerve-wracking tension just in how the camera captures his hands on the steering wheel. Um, it's just fantastic. And Nimrod uh, has done an amazing job. You know his work from Vacancy, the thriller Vacancy with Luke Wilson a number of years ago. Retribution is written by Christopher Salmonpour, and it's based on Alberto Martini's film. And it is just a job so well done. The basic premise is it's high octane, it's redemption, revenge. Liam Neeson plays Matt Turner, a financial guy. And you can tell he has a tenuous relationship with his boss. He likes to make him happy. The boss kind of dumps things on him to handle, especially when you have a client that you may be losing and you need Matt to save them, to keep that client. Well, Matt's all business, but he also has two kids. And his wife, who is played by uh, M. Beth Davids, who co-starred with Neeson in uh, Schindler's List. Um, she says, you got to take the kids to school. And of course, as many dads, he grumbles, groans, I'm busy. And it's like, no, you got to do it. So the kids are in the car. And while they're in the car, he gets a phone call from an obviously altered voice uh, saying, there's a bomb under the seat of your car. And if you get out of the car, the car is going to explode. They can't, kids can't get out of the car either. Because the passenger seats are also allegedly wired to explode. So almost, almost in real time is how this unfolds. Very close to real time. Matt Turner is driving around the city in Berlin, driving around, taking directions from text messages and phone calls from this mysterious voice. And it reaches a crescendo where his kids are, are actually in great physical harm and have been injured. And what would a father do? So it is absolutely a white-knuckler, edge-of-your-seat thriller. It is in theaters right now. 
If you didn't see it at World Cinema Day yesterday and pay four bucks, I encourage you to go pay full price. This one's worth full price. But the breakouts in this film are Jack Champion and Lily Aspel who play Neeson's children. And I have to tell you, Lily Aspel, she will she just will steal your heart. Steal your heart as you watch her. Uh, Matthew Modine is in the film. And also, Noma Dumezwene, I think I said her name right, who plays the police inspector who is trying to defuse a really bad situation. So I got to speak with Nimrod. He is absolutely a delight. Uh, and you're going to hear us momentarily talk about working with his cinematographer, Flavio Martinez Labiano, the, in terms of the color palette, the, um, the entire visual grammar, the dutching within the car. And it, for anybody who's seen Locke, you'll know, you'll remember what Stephen Knight did, positioning, I think, 16 cameras, GoPros and cameras within the car to give all different perspectives so you don't get bored. This is something that Nimrod and Flavio also try doing, not with 16 cameras, but still, uh, you know, dutching and using uh, POV to establish power plays uh, between various characters in the film. Just so well done. I love Flavio's work. You know his work, The Jungle Cruise, The Shallows. And Nonstop, which was Neeson on a Plane. Scores by Harry Gregson Williams, who has done a great score. Meg 2, which is out now, and The Meg, The Martian, Prince of Persia. So this is a top-notch team with editing by Steve Merkovich. So without any further ado, one of my favorite action films of the year so far. Take a listen to my exclusive interview with Nimrod Antal talking about retribution. Hi, Nimrod. How are you? Hi, Debbie. Thank you. I'm well. How are you? I am very excited to be speaking with you about retribution. This is... I'm going to be very... I'm going to be perfectly blunt here. I love this movie. Wow. You rock. Can we talk more often? <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you want. This is classic Liam Neeson. It's, of course, he doesn't have to do as much running around as he did in his younger days, but you contain all of this action and tension within the car. This is like taking his classics like nonstop in the commuter from a plane and a train and putting it in a car, and you just knock it out of the park. Thank you. It was a... Um... It was a, when the opportunity came and they had asked, is making a film with Liam Neeson something that appeals to you? It, it, you know, it, I thought it was a rhetorical question. I mean, it's, uh, he's, he's, such an, he's such an awesome performer, and then I was really lucky to kind of understand what a wonderful human being he is on top of it as I had the opportunity to work with him. And, yeah, his... His uh, energy, his focus, and his passion was something he brought every single day, and it translates. It really does. It truly does. I mean, right down to, and this is kudos to your cinematographer, to Flavio, who has shot 
Neeson in, in a few other film action films. But right down to the, the camera shots, the close-ups of his hand gripping the steering wheel, you can see the white knuckling and the tension as he is rolling his, his clenched fist around that steering wheel. And those little things add so much power to the fear and tension here. It just amazed me the detail that you captured within a car and the tension yeah, you brought out. Thank, thank you for, for clocking that. I mean, every, every film we, I, any film I approach, I attend a storyboard. And the reason is to discover those moments before we ever even get to the floor. Because when you're in such a contained space, that confined space, you're trying to take advantage of, you know, any any opportunity, right? And and in something like this, putting the camera inside the windshield or putting the camera outside the windshield means two completely different things. Mm-hmm. So we were very very focused on trying to exploit as much of the detail as you put it that we could. It reminded me very much of what Stephen Knight did with Locke and Tom Hardy. Of course, wow. I think I think Stephen had 16 cameras, GoPros and cameras, inside the car, if I recall uh, my interview with Stephen. But you did very, you and Flavio did very much the same thing here by constantly keeping the, changing the views, changing the angles. I love the fact we keep getting different perspectives and POVs within the car itself and even looking outside the car. I mean, right down to his foot on the gas pedal. So you're constantly keeping us visually engaged. It's not just somebody riding around in a car. So I'm really curious how you and Flavio went about developing this visual grammar to even give us the dutching power power positions within the car, especially when we're looking at the text messaging, the phone, and live person. So incredibly well done from a storytelling standpoint to maintain and shift power back and forth. Yeah, it, it, it was really, you know, what was most appealing is how do you, how do you, accepting the challenge, how do you keep it suspenseful? How do you keep it cinematic? How do you augment and enhance the emotions that they're experiencing through the camera composition and the movement. And um, yeah, it's just it, it's storyboarding every single frame out before we even get to the floor. And that doesn't mean that you can't pivot or change on the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, often something will present itself that you didn't think of or, or something will present itself that, that is far better than what your initial intention was. But for the most part, I think especially in something so confined the boards really do help help the filmmakers kind of uh, have a sense of where you were and where you're going mm-hmm. so again i would just say the storyboards here were, were were a tool that really helped us focus on on those moments but then beyond beyond the camera moves and beyond putting it in the right place and finding those details it really did come down to the performers their performances, Liam's ability and uh, openness to play the character vulnerable. You know, there's 
there's a lot of, 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 of the family dynamic playing out in addition to the suspense uh, action and the thrills of it all. And I think what really ultimately allows you to connect with these characters were the, the sick performances that Liam, Jack Champion, Lily Espel, Noma Dumaswini, Matthew Modine, they all brought this incredible focus and energy every day. So without, you know, without them leading the charge as far as the emotions, it really, all, all our, our camera movements and comps would have just fell short had it not been for the incredible performances that they gave us. Bringing up uh, Noma, I mean, who I think you cast perfectly as the inspector. I love what you do metaphorically in terms of leveling the playing field between Matt Turner and the inspector. Because first she's standing up, she's looking down, she's got the power play, and slowly the camera brings, she comes down so that we've got them on level playing fields eye level as she's talking to him inside the car. And you do that with several other characters in the film as well, one of which I'm not going to mention because it'll be a big spoiler and I don't want that. But I love how you use that technique from a metaphoric standpoint to convey so much. And jumping from Noah, from Noma, you scored. You knocked it out of the park with Jack and Lily, casting them. Man. Oh, my. Like our casting director, Aurori, our casting director, really played a huge role in that. And um, you, you are a one hundred. This film, you know, I mean, of course, without Liam, this thing isn't working. But if Jack and, and Lily didn't bring what they brought and didn't bring the quality of performance that they did, the, the film wouldn't be what it is. Yeah. And, and they both, I was so terrified initially in the script with these two kids, man. It was, you know, the whole thing can bleed out if that isn't working. <laughs> and and uh, day one, I just remember looking at the producers after Lily and Jack's argument. That was one of the earlier things we captured in the home. And right away, I just, this warmth kind of washed over me, this, this level of comfort suddenly washed over me, understanding that I was dealing with some real players. Lily is a scene stealer, and the camera loves her. I'm writing something right now, and there's two actors involved, and Lily's one of them. Oh, I, she is amazing. And, you know, the chemistry between Jack and Lily is so authentic so resonant. Yeah. You and, could... and, and, and by the way, much much to their credit, super cool kids. Just oh. grounded, humble, passionate, prepared. I remember day after day, like just going up to them going, you guys are rock stars. <laughs> you know, and I meant it completely sincerely. They were they were such an awesome team. And individually, just what cool human beings, you know? Like, I know that we're all going through, like, moments of darkness these, these past few years. And I got to say, man, when I when I see those two kids, I'm like, okay, there's hope. We're going to be okay. Watching the two of them and their relationship change as this film progresses, 
is fantastic, but watching them and their attitude towards their father is what really gets to the heart of this film because this is not just an action film, a thriller. There is so much heart in this film between a father and his children. And it really, you have it it paced very, very well as we see this relationship shift dramatically, especially between Jack's character and Matt. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the one of the crazy, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything either, so I'm a little bit reluctant to bring up examples, but um, every, I, I think the reason if, if people are responding to the film, I, I think the reason that maybe a lot of people won't consciously understand is the vulnerability that Liam and the children offer up in the movie. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's really touching and it's really authentic and sincere and um, yeah I'm 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 a better filmmaker after that movie having worked with those kids and Liam than I was going into it I just it, it's incredible they really elevated my game with the commitment that they arrived with every day I have to say it's so nice to see a father going the extra mile for his children. It's not something we see that often. It's always the mother protecting the kids, not the father. But with Liam, he set the tone for that with the Taken series, protecting his daughter. So yeah. this is almost coming full circle for him. Yeah, and, and I, love, I love that. I, I think we, we, I was speaking to someone earlier, and they had mentioned this, this that, you know, modern... Somehow along the line, along the way, leading men almost shunned vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. There, there seems to be this presentation of cool and macho and, and all the rest, and, and that is fine. Um, but I think without without being balanced out and without having the actual humanity side of it present, it becomes a bit like a facade. And mm-hmm. in this case, I think they... It goes so much deeper because of Liam's willingness to to express and, and perform that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. I mean, this, the cinema world was knocked on its heels many decades ago when Cary Grant cried in Penny Serenade. Nobody had ever seen that kind of vulnerability from a leading man before. So yeah. to see you visit that level of vulnerability here... I really, I, I just so appreciate that you went there and that he went there with it. Yeah, no, I, I, I was too. And, and, and in the editing room, there was that moment where I kind of, it was that kind of like, you know, slap yourself in the, in the head moment where you go, why, why haven't I seen this in the last 20 years? Yeah. To the, I mean, why was it as, why wasn't this as apparent to me as it is right now? And, and I think that the film's success has so much to do with that. Speaking of being in the editing room here, talk to me about working with Steve Markovich. Steve is so good with tension and thrillers. I mean, just look at Escape Room. Even a film like Risen, he builds tension in the edit and the pacing in there, going all the way back to Con Air or, or Big Trouble in Little China. So he captures emotion and action 
And you guys really have this very perfectly paced for building I tension. Words. I have five words for you with Steve Merkovich. Yes. Best post experience ever had. <laughs> I can't say enough about what I'm seeing on screen in terms of Steve's editing. His, his, um, his process and the time spent with him was not only creatively exhilarating, but it was just, it was like hanging out with my brother. Um, just someone who I could talk to about anything. And then, you know, we'd be chit-chatting about life for half an hour. And then he'd go, oh, yeah, let me show you something really quick. <laughs> and it would be, it would be stunning. And, um, and then I also have to, I mean, that entire post team that was with, um, with Steve was some of the most, some of the kindest and just, just I, I, I can't say enough about the post experience of this film. I also have to mention the incredibly talented um, Harry Gregson Williams. Oh my God, the score is great. I mean, between him and Steve and just the entire post team, thank you was not enough. I'm curious, Nimrod, how challenging was it in finding the proper pacing for this film and working with your post work with the use of text messages and the phone so easily you could have drawn us into a Timur Bekmanmatov uh, screen life kind of film constantly on the phone with the text and the calls and the text and the calls you didn't do that and even when we're seeing text messages many times it's the phone is laying on, on the passenger seat. It's not the only thing consuming the screen. So I'm curious how challenging that was to really utilize that without having it destroy the overall was, film. That, that's a great question. There was, there, was two, there, was, there was two things that I can attribute that to. One, very early on in the process, working on the screenplay, there was a... There was an attempt to simplify. There was a few more devices in some of the earlier iterations. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I wanted to really strip it down to the most simple form. So part of it was, first and foremost, just trying to focus on, on lessening the devices just in general, right? Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, we tried to give the devices that do play a role, we wanted to give them a character, uh, you know, they, we wanted these devices to feel like characters on their own. Mm -hmm. So if you recall the, 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 the nefarious phone, yes, for a better word, it looks rough, you know, yeah. it's, it's cracked and it's held together by rubber bands and it, 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 it has its own character. Even the bomb with the with the the, the pressure plate indicator. Mm -hmm. You know, these, these were all things that kind of much like Al in two thousand and one. We tried to give these devices their own characters. Um, I, so I think I think that also played a role in it. And and then of course just understanding that the real story is being told on the actors' faces, right. not on the devices. 
Mm -hmm. So these were all considerations as we were moving making the film. You definitely applied all of those considerations perfectly, Nimrod. I'm curious about your color palette. You've got a couple different things happening with color. Particularly, we're inside the car. It's it's a little bit denatured. It is not saturated. Saturation we see in the bomb and the pressure plate, and that's really the only big color pop with red, yellow, and green as we're seeing there. But you leave color to the exterior world and some of these old world buildings. And in the third act in particular, I notice your saturation comes up incrementally at a time. So I'm curious about what you, your thoughts with the color palette design. Well, again, we, we had a really talented colorist. Um, I, I wanna make sure I'm getting his name right. And, and by, uh, Mitch Paulson, I believe. And, and just a super, super talented guy. So again, I was surrounded by some very, very talented folks. But Berlin itself and the city itself dictated a lot of that, you know, from the get-go. And sometimes, sometimes working within the confines, I mean, much like the story itself, as a filmmaker, you're, you have to embrace the, what's given. So in that regard, some of it was very much just by virtue of what the city was presenting to us at the time. But, um, you know, Mitch and, and, and Flavio and myself, we spent a lot of time having those conversations. But Mitch is really the, the key here, just someone who really, um, again, you're only as talented as the people you're surrounded by. And fortunately, I was surrounded by rock stars. <laughs> you definitely were. And the proof is in the pudding on the screen, Nimrod. I've got, you know, one last question for you. I loved what you did with Vacancy many years ago. I see your growth as a filmmaker from then to now. So I'm curious what you learned about yourself as a filmmaker in making Retribution that you will now be able to take forward into your future films. That's, that's another great question. Um, I, I, I think what I'm beginning to understand more and more over the past year or so is that is how much how much of my role is one of service and and understanding and approaching it as such you know it's it's a strange thing especially when you're writing your own project even though i did not write retribution but um you know it's an ego-born process a bit right and, and but then as, as you start to move forward and you start to understand that the best work coming out is is our collaborations and, and 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 is ensuring that the people you're working with not only the, the people you're working with feel that you are there to service them i don't know if you're understanding what i'm trying to say mm -hmm. but no. i'm trying really really hard nowadays to better understand that i'm i'm there to really help and elevate a lot of folks and by doing so they help and elevate me does that make any sense it makes perfect sense nimrod perfect yeah so i think that's what i'm really just i'm getting a little bit older and, and i'm still an idiot and I'm, there's still a lot <laughs> i gotta learn but there's um definitely a better understanding of of coming from a place of service as opposed to another place whatever that may be 
Well, anybody that watches Retribution will never, the word idiot will never come into their mind. I guarantee you. <laughs> Again, I love this film so much. I appreciate your passion for it. Thank you for those words. It means a lot. This will become part of, once it's available digitally or on DVD, Blu-ray, this will become part of my Nissan arsenal. I can tell you that. <laughs> for binge sessions that will go on forever. Just so well done, Nimrod. I love it. Absolutely love it. Man, that's really, really, you know, um, I've gotten my butt kicked a bit in this business, and i got to tell you, when, when you get a little love and you have, uh, and you can feel the uh, sincerity in it, it's really the gasoline for me. And I say that with, with the utmost sincerity, so thank you. Oh, well, thank you for making this film, and I can't wait to see what you bring me next. Um, I hope I'm doing something soon, so thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Nimrod, and I hope we get to chat again in the future. I, I do, too. I really do appreciate you. And that was Nimrod Antel talking about Retribution, starring Liam Neeson. See it, see it, see it. I, I really love this film, and I'm sure anybody that listens to me or knows me knows what I had to bleep out in the edit at the <laughs> top of the interview when I was talking about how much I love the film. But this is high octane, high energy, high tension. It is classic Liam Neeson in the vein of nonstop, the, compu the commuter. So I can't recommend it enough. It's a lot of fun. All right, now we're going to switch gears here. I'm so excited to welcome these two guys to the show. The Michaels are here. Hi, guys. Uh, hi, how's it going? How are I, you? I'm fine. How are you guys? Good, Debbie. Thank you very much for having us on. Oh, my God. I'm so excited, after, and especially after seeing your film. Oh, uh, really? Ju <laughs> just to let everybody know, we've got Michael Buffaro and Michael Mitten uh, with us, known as, collectively as the Michaels, which makes it so much easier for people in the world um, <laughs> when you do that. This film, Don't Look Away, this is a gem. I love this film, guys. This is so much fun. You, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, you captured my attention immediately with mm. your saturated color palette, your color selections, uh, that tinge of neon that pops in. Just absolutely fabulous. And you just take off from there. And you use your use of color. You use unusual colors, too. You have a very specific red. You have teal that turns into a turquoise in many instances, and not a lot of people use turquoise. Then you also have, in the late second, third act, you have the females, three of them, dressed in a mustard yellow <laughs> shirt. So you have that mustard yellow uh, contrasting with some browns, contrasting with the mannequin, and then punctuated with red and the tealish, the teal and turquoise that pops in. And this is, I mean, it's a feast for the eyes. I have to tell you. 
Thank you oh, so thanks much. so much. Thank you very much. It's funny you picked up. That was our like color palette. Uh, you know, when we were shooting, our cool kind of rules for everything were, were you know red, blues, and yellows. Yeah. So that's so cool that you like picked up on that. Inspired by some of the Italian films, the uh, Giallo films and one. Yes, very yeah. much so. Very much so. But you've got a lot of influences here, but. Why don't, why don't you tell the uh, the listening audience what this film is about? Because this is also very clever. Oh, thank you. Um, well, the movie, I can give you a really short version. The movie is about a supernatural mannequin that pursues a group of young people uh, one by one and kills them. <laughs> Pretty well lit. Yeah, and for anybody listening, this is nothing like the mannequin in the movie Mannequin of many decades ago <laughs> with Kim Cattrall. Uh, <laughs> the anti-mannequin, yeah. But, you know, the mannequin here, I got to tell you guys, uh, the way you use this mannequin, because he keeps popping up, you, and you look away and he's gone, and then he'll pop up again. And he'll look away, and you'll look away, and he's gone. And suddenly he's behind you. Then he's in front of you. Then he's outside the window. Um, but he really looks like, I kept wanting to call him Reject Ken. He didn't make the cut for the Barbie movie. Uh-oh. I think we lost the guys, Pam. Uh-oh. Oh, here they are calling back. You're back. There you are. There you are. Sorry. No, you're not. I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> the mannequin did it. Yeah, the mannequin, that's right. You were going to ask us a question about the mannequin. Well, you know, as I'm watching the mannequin, because I love the way he just pops up. You know, he can be in front of you, then he's behind you, then he's to the side of you, then he's outside the window, then he's across the street. <laughs> you never know. And as we got close-ups of him, I kept all I kept thinking about is, my God, he's like Reject Ken. He didn't make the cut in the Barbie movie. Um, he's so creepy. Um, you really, you took some, your influences for the mannequin itself, um, really harken back to the very early kind of Ken's and G.I. Joe's back in the 1960s. With, We're losing you again. Oh. Uh-oh. Uh, oh, I hear you. You're back. <laughs> okay. All right. So, it, it hard, the whole look of the mannequin falls back to, like, the early, early Ken dolls and G.I. Joes in the 1960s in his structure, in his body structure, his facial structure. Um, so, that's a nice touchstone that you have. It's a nice nod. But, you know, the way you interweave the, this whole mannequin into this story... Uh, because we really focus, this is primarily through the POV of Frankie, played by, beautifully played by Kelly Bastard. And yeah, Kelly did an amazing job. Kelly Great. is, she is outstanding. And of course, Michael Mitten, you're one of her BFFs, Jonah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm her childhood best friend, and uh, like, we have a unspoken love between us yeah. it's, uh, that her boyfriend just gets in the way of. Well, the camaraderie between you, uh, between Jonah and Frankie is 
the dynamic is fantastic. The chemistry is great. And Jonah brings, he provides an excellent, calm rationale to what is happening uh, in this situation. And I love the measured performance that you give and slowly how that intensifies, Michael. Just Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed watching that. But let's talk about Frankie's boyfriend for a minute here. Guys, <laughs> you clearly did not like Steve when you wrote him. We like to make fun of guys like that. He, uh, I mean, it's like <laughs> I, I wanted to punch his lights out. I'm sorry? I wanted to just punch his lights out. Oh, yeah, of yeah, course. That's, that's exactly yeah. what you're supposed to want to do. <laughs> well, you succeed in that. I mean, Colm Hill did a great job playing such an unlikable character. And the more we saw Steve and Frankie and Jonah, you can't help but wonder, how did she end up with Steve when her BFF Jonah was right there? We, we laugh about that all the time. We, we don't understand what got into this girl's head where she wound up with Steve. For and we did that purposefully because a lot of times when people meet, they don't know what, they've, what they're getting themselves into until, you know, it's too late. And then they don't know how to deal with it afterwards. Eventually, she does kind of figure it out. Yeah, but it takes her a while. You know, we're what, you know, 65 minutes into the film before she figures it out. <laughs> yeah, well, it was also the lifetime before that, though. True. <laughs> it's the uh, the years she spent with him before that. After <laughs> she, uh... Anyway. But, you know, a great performance from Colm to make us dislike him so intensely. But yeah, we love working with Colm. But, you know, and then you buoy the cast. You've got Renee Lai as, as another one of the of the core group as Lucy. You've got Abu Bakuli, who does a, a great job as Drake. He really impressed me. You've got Brittany Pilgrim, Sophie Tong. He's a first-time actor. Are you that serious? That guy there had never been on a movie set in his life. He didn't even know what a screenplay was when we discovered him. He is so good. And he really brings the palpable visual fear factor. Yeah, he was like, uh, it was so funny because Michael and I were scouting a location and we were having trouble finding an actor for that role. And we just saw him on the street and we approached him and asked him like, hey, have you ever thought of being in a movie before? And he looked at us, he's like, no. And we're like, oh, well, would you like want to be in this movie? Like, we'd like to audition you. And he thought we were trying to make a porno. Because he just sees two random guys come up to him and say, you want to be in a movie. But he got right behind it, and he, like, totally, oh like, God. got into that whole world. He was great. He is amazing. What a find. Yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, Jason Haney as Lewis. Yeah, <laughs> he's another one, man. You know, just does not fit in with this circle of friends. <laughs> we got a kick out of Jason. Yeah, Jason Jason is really funny. And the whole friend group is like, we keep joking about it. Like, the friend group, who is friends with Jason's character? Like, of all yeah. these friends, is it, like, Abu's character? Is it me? Like, how does he fit in there? But he, uh, yeah, he was really funny. I, I just, 
so well cast to come up with this eclectic group of friends. And, you know, but for Jason playing Lewis, um, you really believe that they would all be friends. Unless Lewis is there just to be the butt of everybody's jokes. I, I haven't figured that out yet. And then yeah, we, we figure that Lewis is somebody they met in, like, their freshman year of college, you know, and he just kind of hung, hung around with the group, even though they've all outgrown him. That's kind of our uh, explanation. But, but now, Michael Buffaro, we have to talk about Victor Malik. Victor Malik is... Wow, what a performance, what a creation of a character. The man with the secret to the mannequin. Thank you. Michael. Michael's really shy talking about it because he's never acted before. So I, did, I did one little piece in another movie that, where an actor didn't show up once before. And then I was talked to by Michael uh, to play that role because couldn't find the right look as well, other than this great talent that I'm really not, <laughs> I didn't think I could do it. But uh, after about a month of looking and uh, actually longer, we, uh, Michael kept forcing me and, and uh, pushing me into that, into that role. And, and the executives all, saw my reel because they asked me, they said, why don't you just put something on tape and then see what it, what, how, how you feel. And I, I did it. And then they basically said, you have to do this role. So. Oh my, yes, definitely. After seeing you do this role. Yes. Thank you very much. I, what a character and the way that you play him. We don't really know where he stands. There's a lot of ambiguity uh, within the way you play the character and your body language. Your body. I learned that, is, I learned that from Uma Thurman. Really? Yeah, years ago, I, I worked on a movie years ago called uh, Jennifer Eight, mm-hmm. where she plays a blind uh, woman at a blind institute. And I just watched her the whole time. Yeah, it's Uma Thurman, right? So, of course. <laughs> and uh, but she played a blind person, and I basically I remembered how she was in that movie, so I I just basically copied her. Believe wow. it or not. Wow. Well, I got to ask you now. Did you have contacts in the sclera contacts to make your eyes look the way they look? Yes. Yeah, how, they were con- how uncomfortable were they? Actually, I was surprised because everyone complains about whenever I make a movie uh, or I've been involved in a movie where contacts were involved, they, people are always complaining about it if they're not used to wearing contacts. Myself, I'm not, I've never had anything in my eyes before, and I kept them in the whole day. I didn't, they didn't bother me at all. I, in fact, I actually preferred having them in there instead of taking them out all the time. Uh, for comfort, like wow. I just preferred leaving them in there, so I'd walk around all day with, uh, you know, with those milky eyes. Mm. You know, how difficult was it casting this film? Because you, you, this ensemble had to be right. It had to be the right mix. Yeah, I mean, it was tricky because you know we're an independent, you know, production and all that. So like when you're looking for people, 
it's really tricky because you kind of have to, you know, you have to kind of cast, you know, one person at a time, right? You have to cast around Frankie characters. So we have to wait until we found Kelly, who was perfect, before we could start figuring out, okay, who else yeah. we can get in there. Uh, we knew we were going to use me, so, again, we wanted to kind of work around some of these things as well. We knew we were going to use Column as Steve, and a lot of it, you know, was really, really good luck. Um, a bunch of the actors in the movie, like Brittany Pilgrim, uh, Abu, as we mentioned, Sophie Tom, who runs out the friend group, mm -hmm. uh, they're all, like, local from Victoria, uh, so they like, we mainly... Where we shot the film, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're from Vancouver, and, and we shot the film in Victoria, so, uh, yeah, it was a lot of locals from there. Um, the town itself was almost like a character as well. Yeah. The fact that we used Victoria, which was perfect for, for shooting that movie. Uh, the lighting, everything about it was really nice, and, you know, it was just a compliment yeah, I mean, it is, it's a perfect location for this film. Now, there is one mm -hmm. more actor I have to ask about. You know, how, how difficult was it casting the mannequin? The mannequin? Yes. Did you say? How difficult was it casting the mannequin, getting him to oh, work? Oh, well, that is very, yeah, it was That's a big a ordeal. We, Michael and I, when we were planning to shoot, we were originally going to go with you know, more of a, a plain mannequin. Yeah, like a plain glossy mannequin that you would see in a store, you know, kind of Slenderman-esque. Mm -hmm. And then about two weeks before we went to camera, we got a call from one of our producers who said they wanted a custom-designed mannequin, and it needed to be custom-designed and built in two weeks. <laughs> and we've never done that kind of stuff before. Like, that's an expensive thing to do, so... Uh, we were really lucky that Michael had a, you know, friends in the business. Ray Lay did the design for the mannequin. He Ray came. works on uh, a lot of big features like Star Trek mm -hmm. features, and uh, he's done a ton of stuff over the years. I've known him for 30-some-odd years. But we essentially, yeah, we had two weeks to custom design a mannequin and then have it built as well. It ended up getting 3D printed and... Uh, we, we were about to shoot, and we didn't know if we were going to have our mannequin ready for our first day. In fact, we didn't have the mannequin ready for the first day. Oh, that's right. I, I ended up doubling as the mannequin Aww. in some shots, and then we had uh, another another crew member doubled as the mannequin. Oh, yeah, she, she doubled as the mannequin in uh, one piece as well on the first day. The mannequin didn't get there till the second day. It wasn't yet. You know, these actors that just don't show up on time. What can we say? Well, what are you going to do, right? The mannequin, we don't want to get on his bad side. He can yeah. mess us up. Uh, yeah, because he's crucial. Crucial to this film. Yeah, well, now, that's the thing. We were, like, scared. We're like, oh, my God, we're, we're here. We're at our shoot date, and our lead actor isn't even, like, ready yet. <laughs> When uh, we were doing the swimming pool scene, remember the swimming pool? Oh, yeah, the swimming pool scene. That was that's the, great. The mannequin's last scene, because the mannequin... But the real mannequin he used got destroyed during that. Uh, couldn't get oh my it to stay in the water because it was floating all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. The challenges of low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget filmmaking. Yep. You know, 
Now, where did the idea for this story come from, guys? Were you sitting at breakfast one morning, staring at a cereal box, and all of a sudden, you know, the cardboard characters on the cereal box, did that inspire you to think of, ah, mannequin? Well, we were looking for something to do. Like, Michael and I really wanted to make something in, like, the spirit of kind of classic independent you know, 70s, 80s movies where it's a cool idea, maybe it's franchisable, you know, maybe you can have, like, a little, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street thing. It's something that was really fun for people. And I remember there was a midnight screening of Friday the 13th Part 9 or Part 8 or something, <laughs> whichever one is Jason Takes Manhattan. Uh, and it's one of the only Friday the 13th oh, yeah movies that I had never seen as a kid. Like I watched every Nightmare on Elm Street, every Friday the 13th, all of them. I had never seen Jason Takes Manhattan. And if you're familiar with these like slasher movies, mm -hmm. people make fun of them as the series goes on because the characters, whether it's Michael Myers or Jason, suddenly they're able to kind of, the classic scene is the girl running through the forest and she looks behind her and the person's just walking at a measured pace and then Somehow they're in front of her. In, in Jason Takes Manhattan, there's a scene where this girl is in, like, a room, and she's trying to escape. There's a bunch of doors, and everywhere she goes, Jason is there. In, in a night, it's in a nightclub, actually. Yeah. And the movie is not particularly very good at all. The scene itself isn't very well shot. It was so ridiculous. But I remember watching it and telling Michael right afterwards, I was like, man, this movie is not a great one. But this one, sequence, like, there's something here. And well, that inspired us to, make, to, to come up with something that could just appear and reappear and, or, and disappear. And, mm -hmm. and then, because originally we were going to do, like, you know, maybe it was just, like, a man, like, you know, like a Michael Myers, you know, but give him sort of more advanced powers. Mm -hmm. And then we saw a picture of a mannequin on Reddit sitting in a car. And we looked at it, it's like, oh, there's something, like, offsetting about that. Because, like, from far away it looks normal, but there's something not quite right. And then you zoom in and you're like, wait a minute, the mannequin driving that car. <laughs> and then it kind of all clicked together for us. Yeah, and you have a, a, a scene, you know, a few scenes. You set this up beautifully. I mean, we've got poor Jonah holding the leash of a dog, yelling at, at a man across the street. Mister, I have your dog. I have your dog. <laughs> and dog obviously does not think he belongs to the man who, and takes off. And things really start, that's when Jonah starts, like, thinking and, and yeah. putting pieces together. And I, real, I love that scene. So oh, I really thank do. You. I love that scene. Now, you guys edited this film also yes. now were you editing as you went did you wait until you had shot everything what was that editing process like because you you build tension and then you also give us some things like steve um and lewis as moments of comic relief almost even though it's not laugh out loud funny so i'm curious yeah, about like the that's... editing like, for the, for the edit for us, it was, like, the first time Michael and I have ever, like, edited by ourselves. Like, we've always used an editor who, you know, has their own equipment. They're technically savvy. Uh, we are not as technically 
technically savvy when it comes to the editing. Um, but we just felt on this one that we really wanted to be able to spend the time uh, going through the footage ourselves. We actually had a huge learning curve. Like, we couldn't edit anything on set because uh, we were... We, I was figuring out how to use DaVinci Resolve. Like, I hadn't edited since college. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the technology's come a long way from, from uh, you know, six years ago or whatever yeah. it was. Um, so, no, like, I was figuring stuff out with Michael along the way. And uh, when we wrapped, like, that's when we, you know, really started editing. And so uh, in, basically, we did the assembly, and then we just had fun. We just took our time, and we worked morning, noon, and night, nonstop. We didn't stop for months. Wow. Tightening it up, doing all that stuff. And the things that we argue so much about, like, the smallest things, like, if you were to see us editing and see the arguments we get into, it's like, (laughs) man, you guys are talking about, like, trimming, like, two or three frames or something, and you guys are making a blow-up, you know, like, you're potentially screwing up the movie, which, you know, we're not. It's both of us have a, a passion for, you know, trying to get everything right and uh, in the edit. Um, yeah. Well, I think you did an excellent job with the edit. You build the tension. You hold moments that really need to be held. You snap cut uh, moments where that make you jump out of your seat. So you did an amazing job, and also I have to have to compliment you guys on the third act scenes involving mirrors. Number oh, one, thank you. number one, your cinematographer Ethan Merrick, beautiful setup, beautiful uh, framing, and yeah. camera blocking for for mirror scenes. Really, really well done. Very impressive. And thank you. The way so Ethan did a great job. Uh, he was very helpful on that, and uh, he's a uh, real professional, um, and he was a real find. Again, we had to look for someone that lived in, because of budgetary restraints, yeah. we had to look for someone that lived on Vancouver Island, and it just happened that we, we came across his, uh, his reel. And we were blown away when we saw his work. We were like, wow, this guy's way above our budget or whatever, and... Uh, he was a he was great. He great liked the work. project, and I mean the the whole movie. Um, we only had eleven crew members show. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's with you and me. Like without yeah. without us, it's nine crew. We we yeah, ran about an eight or nine person crew wow. for the whole show. Ethan did all his own camera operating um, with his a uh, couple of guys to help him. Some really good, uh, like a lamp op. Mm-hmm. And uh, grip guy, you know. I have, but to we didn't that. have a big crew at all. You know, Ethan did so he an had amazing, a really good job with the light. He did an amazing job with the light, especially when we go into inky blue, black darkness, come out of it, and the way he shot negative space, and the way you guys in the edit did yeah. not remove that negative space. You know, so often you get negative space and. Some people may think, "Oh, it's just black. We're going to cut it off." But yeah, well, you Michael's really that good here. at that. Like as a director, right? Like Michael, and sometimes we argue about it because Michael goes for, uh, and, and Ethan was right on board with this too. But like very cinematic images, images mm-hmm. which you know 
are designed to be played on a large screen. Yes. Um, and, and they're things that sometimes are lost when people are editing on laptops or when they're thinking of, oh, people are only going to see this on like a home screen or whatever. They, they tend to punch in when there's no need to, when negative space like way nicer. We actually like, we added a little bit of negative space to some of the stuff mm. with visual effects. Mm. Like there were se- some of the stuff of me in that park. Um, there was some additional, like we didn't have permits for that park stuff. So we didn't <laughs> have a controlled set. So there'd be things in the background that were just, we wanted to remove because we wanted that emptiness. Right. Um, yeah. And Ethan helped us, helped us a long way. And then, uh, the visual effects people uh, help remove any sort of distracting elements around as well. Yeah, mm. we removed uh, light sockets. We removed all sorts of stuff. Also during. The... Oh yeah, we have a we have a big thing. We don't like uh, light switches or like uh, power outlets. Power outlets, anything like that, we remove. <laughs> well, there's another huge element of this film, guys that really, really impresses me. And that is Matt Donsey's score and your sound design. That score and the sound is omnipresent. Um, it's a, it's it, really amazing work that Matt did. Uh, um, Michael's brother actually uh, helped us source a bunch of music from his friend and scored it as well um, using using music from his friend, the late Phil Western. Uh, Michael's brother was really good friends with Phil. Phil unfortunately passed away a few years ago, oh. and um, so all the music, most of the, a lot. I don't know how much of the music. 80, 85% percent of, the music. of the music was uh, composed by Phil Western. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of a tribute to Phil. Mm-hmm. And um, Phil worked with many, many big, big name people over the years. Yeah, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, oh, okay. Brian Adams, uh, and a lot of... Skinny Puppy, bands like that. Is a producer as well, and uh, yeah, but I'm very he, happy to have that music in the movie. And Matt did an amazing job in a real short amount of time, well, and he did it all alone oh, when he came, when it came to the sound mixing and and oh yeah, Matt Matt didn't have like anybody helping him do dialogue cutting or foley or effects. He did everything by himself. Yeah, talk to me about what you were about. What led you to have the sound mix uh, with the scoring and some sound effects um, through the entire film? You, I mean, it is just, it's haunting. It's chilling in moments, but it's always there. Kind of like a m- metaphor for the mannequin. It's always there and you don't know where the heck it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the effect. This is what I was feeling as I'm watching the film and hearing the sound design with almost constant music and effect. It's just, it works brilliantly. Yeah, well, Matt, I remember when we were initially talking, like, Matt, um, really, what he was really trying to do was, like, really incorporate. Uh, the atmospheres of the locations, like enhancing them, 
with with tones and and almost doing uh, one of our references was how David Lynch does of his sound design, where it'll have these amplified atmospheres that give almost this drony sound over mm-hmm. top of it, like you said, like all-encompassing sort of thing. You, you won't even notice. You don't even notice it's there, but it's there. Yeah. And some people pick up on it. Some people don't. But it, that's the job it's, trying, it's, it's wanting to do. Well, you know, it does it here. It doesn't take the scene it complements the scene yes we, we, we actually because when we do this kind of stuff what you're doing is you're you're amplifying the bass in the entire movie like that's kind of what that sound is like it's a lot of bass. and we had to go through a lot of tests with matt um at a certain point once the, you know we were close to the mix because we found that if you decrease the bass too much, and this was actually was really trippy when we were doing this, we decrease the bass way too much at one point, and it starts to like lull you to sleep, even though the movie is exciting. So we actually ended up having to dial the bass back because we were watching it, and we were like, oh, it, Michael's nodding his head right now. It felt really strange with so much bass uh in some of those go-arounds go that it was hypnotic. And we wanted to keep that, but we also didn't want to lull the audience into, you know, sleep, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we don't want the audience uh, to be lulled into sleep and close their eyes. That is, you know, you do, you do want to look at this whole movie. You do not want to look away from it. Yes, that's yeah. We don't want them to look away. <laughs> yeah. So now that the film is getting ready to come out in theaters on September 1st, and then what, following up on On Demand, October 3rd or something? Yeah, I think so. But, you know, as you sit here now and, you know, you're anxious, the film is going to come out, it's going to be on the big screen, people can see it as it should be seen. Uh, You know, what did you learn about yourselves as filmmakers in making Don't Look Away that you can now take forward into future films? Was there a particular challenge that you met? Uh, you know, what did you learn that you can take forward? Um, well, I think the, the, the biggest one, I think, for us was, you know, the, the pacing was a big one. Um, and also just in general, you know, having with things like it's a horror movie and all that but really our approach throughout was we wanted to make a movie that you know people had fun people enjoyed watching and uh you know i remember on this movie in particular michael and i as we were writing the script as we were on set we kept asking ourselves this question is what we want the audience to get out of this. What does the audience need to understand? And that was really helpful for us was just constantly thinking of our audience, what we want from them. And the audience is a vague thing, right? There might be mm-hmm. people who don't like horror movies, so our movie is not for them. But it's just, you know, trying to do something for for people who are going to maybe pay money to go see this movie in theaters, or maybe they will watch it on VOD. And we just really wanted them to feel like, you know, their time, their time, their money, they got their their worth out of it, you know? Well, you definitely know your audience. We wanted 
we wanted to grab uh, studio attention as well, you know, that we could make a movie like this and, and uh, you know, a, a movie at this budget range and, and, and actually have fun with it. Because I think when you're having fun on set, it really shows on the screen, and I think we did yeah. have a great time on that set the whole time. Well, you yeah. know, that's about the best you can say about any film experience. Yeah, any any time I've worked on a show where everyone was in, in good spirits, they'd show up looking forward to working, that's always a success, more, more times than not. And I think it's also, too, like, is keeping the momentum going, you know, for yourself as well. Like, Michael and I, you know, when we did this movie, we we had to do like our own costumes, our own props, all that sort of stuff. Set deck. And, you know, we don't have the resources to necessarily have all of those things lined up by the first day of shooting. There's things that you're getting right. later on. And I remember if you, that red telephone that Michael picks up, uh, <laughs> his character uses in the, in the movie, this old red rotary phone. I went, I spent an entire day in Victoria on one of our last days looking for that phone. Yeah. Because uh, we didn't have a phone for that scene, and we knew we wanted something distinctive looking. And I remember I was telling crew, like some crew members, oh, yeah, I'm looking for this phone, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, you can get a black phone. And, you know, it was like, well, the black phone's not going to be right. And, you know, it's, it's also about not giving up about, like, the small things which seem like they don't matter, but, like, in your heart and in your gut, you kind of know that they do. Yeah. And, you know, boys, one of my favorite things, and I do believe it is in your credits on your film, you ha gave thanks to Denny's. I'm sorry? I, 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 you, you blacked out there. Uh-huh. I, I, I believe it's the credits on your film where you actually have thanks to Denny's in the credits at the end. Oh, yeah, Denny's. <laughs> oh, yeah, to Denny's. Yeah, we spent a lot of time at Denny's. I we'd love... go there after, you know, whenever we had time, free time, we'd go to Denny's just to have a coffee and a bite to eat because we needed to keep working after we finished work. So they were the only place opened at the time. So if just, Denny's is listening, we can also do the Denny's movie. <laughs> uh, I think so. I'd be very happy. I love Denny's. They're, and, you know, I get to use my ARP, my AARP discount there and get 15% off, even for a yeah. cup of coffee. So We did a lot of our planning at Denny's when, uh, you know, we'd work, and then at the end of the day we'd have to go and plan the next day, you know, talk over the next day and see what, you know, what, what we were up against, and then... We'd go to Denny's, we'd order whatever, and it's a great meal, it's a great value, and it's fun for the whole family. <laughs> That's Denny's, right! You know. That's right! I was very thrilled, because, you know, I watch a film to the bitter end until it's totally done. And in, in a theater, it's when the house lights come up and the screen is black. When I have to watch it at home, it's when the whole thing ends and they knock you out of Vimeo because it's over. <laughs> So I, I love to see what's in the credits. And that just thrilled me that somebody thanked Denny's. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, Denny's really should. You can do the Denny's movie. You know, moon's, uh, moon's, over, ha moon's over my hammy. 
you know. Well, we were going to go for Grand Slam. That was yeah. <laughs> Grand Slam, a superb breakfast, a superb breakfast, mm-hmm. and that could, that could make an interesting movie. Guys, I can't. Are you sponsored by Denny's? No, I should be. Yeah, you should be. Yes. I have no sponsors. Um, after nine years, I have no sponsors. I am. Well, you will get one now. I should. I should. My bar should be paying. Denny should be paying. <laughs> uh, you know, just to help inspire guys like you too. Well, exactly. That's what Denny's is there for. Oh. It's been an American institution since 1963. Well, hopefully the Michaels will become an American institution. Um, well, that would be nice. It would be. Guys, I can't thank you enough for having you on the show. This has been a blast. And oh, thank you so much, Debbie. I Thanks. hope everybody goes to see Don't Look Away on September 1st. This week, it's perfect for Labor Day weekend. You're not doing anything. Go to the movies. It's not $4, but, you know, it's well worth the price of admission. Full price. Full price to see this film. It's worth it. So, guys, I hope you'll come back on the show again in the future. I hope you're working on something new. Yeah, we oh, are. yeah. Well, we certainly are. All right. Well, hopefully we will talk again sooner rather than later. And you guys have a great opening week. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you very much, Debbie. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, Michael and Michael. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Take care. And that is the fun-filled The Michaels. A killer mannequin, you know? Don't look away. In theaters, on the big screen, September 1st. And uh, I'll give you a reminder when October 3rd rolls around about it being available on VOD. And also, Retribution, Liam Neeson, in theaters right now. See it, see it, see it. It is fabulous. I love it. Uh, So, as I said at the top of the show, next week is Labor Day. Pam will not be here laboring. I'll be laboring at home. But Pam is taking a well-deserved holiday weekend. And we will be back on September 11th. And September 11th is, wait a minute here. Let me, let me pull up the notes here to get this right. September 11th is all Toronto Film Festival. And I'm beyond excited. Last year during Toronto Film Festival, we had the producer of The Umbrella Men calling in from TIFF. And I love that movie. It is spectacular. He told us then they were working on a sequel. Well, guess what? That sequel is done. That sequel is at TIFF this year. And we're going to have director John Barker and maybe one of the producers with us on September 11th. I'm so excited. And we're going to be talking with Ian Gabriel, another TIFF filmmaker, about his uh, film, Death of a Whistleblower. So I cannot wait for September 11th. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.